you're joining us this morning, you're finding us um, toward the end of a series through the Gospel of Mark called Our Servant King. We've been working our way through Mark's Gospel now for some time, and this morning we find ourselves coming to a particularly interesting or perhaps even difficult passage. Uh, Many of the commentators say that it's one of the more challenging passages in uh, all the scriptures to interpret, and so um, we're going to buckle up and try to dig in this morning in Mark chapter 13. So if you've got a copy of the scriptures in front of you, whether it be on a device or um, an actual physical book, I encourage you to turn there. Mark 13, we'll read the whole chapter together, uh, and then we'll come back and unpack it. Mark chapter 13, beginning in verse 1, Mark writes these words. It says, And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be one left here, one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he. And they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginnings of birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death. And father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom He chose, He shortened the days." And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there He is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard, I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then He will send out the angels and gather His elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. 
So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that He is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but My words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves his home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to, to you, I say to all, stay awake. And this is God's Word. You know, several years ago, my son and I were uh, down at my family's uh, lake camp, uh, Toledo Bend, a large reservoir between Texas and Louisiana. It's about 60 miles in length, and its widest is probably a couple of miles wide, but it's a massive, massive impoundment of water. And we were fishing a particular creek on the Texas side of the lake. And we were fishing far back up into that creek, and there, that, air, that whole area is full of these massive towering pine trees. And we were fishing up close to the bank, tucked in there, nestled among the pine trees as, as they kind of cast a shadow over the area in which we were fishing. And we could begin to hear rumblings off in the distance. And one of the things that's, you, that's about that area is that only about 100 miles north of there is a uh, Barksdale Air Force Base, um, out of which they, they station uh, fighter jets and bombers and things of that nature. And so it's not uncommon to hear um, large military aircraft flying over that area as they, as they do, um, uh, as they go out for, for routine um, flights. And so we were fishing in the back of that creek, and we could hear rumblings off in the distance, which sounded like uh, jet engines. And those, those rumblings um, got louder and louder and louder. Now, when we first began to hear the rumblings, they were potentially miles and miles and miles and miles away from us. But they were flying at, the, at or above the speed of sound, so we could hear this massive roaring as those jets got closer to us. And as we're fishing there along the edge of that creek, tucked back in there amongst the pine trees, all of a sudden, we could hear this deafening roar. I'm, I'm, I kid you not when I say, I thought I was gonna, my eardrums were going to burst. It was so loud. And then all of a sudden, on top of those pine trees, outburst these two fighter jets. They looked like they were doing like dogfighting maneuvers there, practicing out there over these unpopulated areas. And they burst over the treetops, maybe a quarter of a mile down the creek from us. It was, it was one of those moments where you just kind of stand in awe at seeing these massive fighter jets, one chasing the other, diving and doing maneuvers as one tried to evade being locked on by the other. But before we ever saw them, we heard these rumblings in the distance, but as it got closer, the rumblings got louder and they became deafening. You know, the thing is about things that are far off in the distance like that, that are massive and big like that, is, is there's always rumblings, there's always tremors that somehow indicate that they're on the horizon, that they're coming. And what we heard that day, 
as we heard those rumblings in the distance, I want you to know that every day of creation, every day of human history, as we live here on the earth, you hear those same kind of rumblings that get louder and louder as we approach the end of this age until they become a deafening roar. And that's a part of what Mark chapter 13 teaches us, is that every day of human history is filled with these kinds of rumblings of redemption, a full and final redemption upon the second return of Christ. You see, in Mark chapter 13, as we read the text, as we read the text together earlier, I just want you to understand the purpose of this particular chapter in Mark's gospel is Jesus comes off the heels of his engagement with the religious leaders and all the questions that they bring to him and all the challenges to his authority all centered around the temple. And now Jesus finds himself leaving the temple, pronouncing destruction upon the temple and saying that that destruction that would come upon the temple in Mark chapter 13 would be a rumbling or a foreshadow of ultimate uh, of ultimately the end of this age. See, the purpose of Mark 13, contrary to perhaps popular um, evangelical publishers' beliefs, is not to give us a chart, it's not to give us a timeline, it's not to give us a blueprint for the future, like to hang on the wall behind the pulpit so that we can kind of point out when everything's going to happen and how everything's going to unfold. Right? It's, it's not, um, but rather it is to exhort and encourage us to be faithful as disciples in the present rather than making predictions about the future. See, discipleship is not making predictions about the future. Never has been, is not, and never will be about making predictions about the future. But it's not about being an eschatological code cracker, right? About being able to like read the newspapers and then read the Bible and say, well, you see what the Bible says here. That's what's happening here. That's not what faithful discipleship is about in the present. And while there's nothing wrong, listen, there's nothing wrong with studying what the Bible says about the end of the age. However, listen, if it does not change the way that we live today, in the present, then what we're doing is we're making a shallow substitution. If all we're doing is reading what the Bible says about the future, but it's not changing how we live in the present, then we're substituting information for transformation. And we're saying that the accumulation of information is what really matters, rather than heart-level transformation, reforming how we live in the present. And listen, that is a grave danger for those who are infatuated with the future. They would substitute information for transformation and not see that all these rumblings, all these rumblings that we see every day, listen, in the news today, have been rumblings that have been occurring for centuries and generations, for millennia even. So we don't live in a particular unique context. We live in a unique context and so far as it's our context. But it's not unique on the pages of human history because these kinds of rumblings have been taking place from the foundation of the world. And so as we look at Mark chapter 13 this morning, we don't want to look at it through the lens of acquiring some information to put on our charts or our timelines or our tables so that we can impress others with how we've orchestrated or put together all the pieces of information the Bible has to, what the Bible has to say about the future or the end times. But we want to look at Mark chapter 13 through the lenses of what Jesus emphasizes in Mark chapter 13. Because throughout Mark chapter 13, there is a whole host of commandments. 
But I want you to know something this morning, that the lens through which Jesus looks at Mark chapter 13 as he teaches us there in Mark chapter 13 is the lens of faithfulness in the present as disciples who are both clear-minded and wide awake. That's what Jesus emphasizes on multiple occasions in Mark chapter 13. Now there's many commands here, but the two most repeated commands in the chapter are to be on your guard and to stay awake. The first one, be on your guard. In verses 9, 23, and 33, Jesus tells His disciples and those who would come after them to be on your guard. Now that command is literally this. It's, it, 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 in the Greek text, it's the word for see. It's, it's a command or an imperative for see. In other words, it means to see or discern to understand clearly in your mind's eye. That's the metaphorical use of that term. Right? To understand clearly, to be clear-minded in your perception of reality, particularly your perception of ultimate reality. That's what Jesus is driving at here. Now to be clear-minded and see and perceive ultimate reality as it is, church, does guard us and it guards us against being swept up into alternative realities. Alternative realities that we construct for ourselves where we believe that the normative Christian life is the Western Christian life. It is the comfortable Christian life. It is the placid Christian life. Jesus says that is an alternative reality that we have constructed for ourselves. Because the ultimate reality is this is that the normal christian life is where all is a, a, a normative experience of suffering persecution and tribulation because those are the rumblings of final redemption and jesus says if you want to be a faithful disciple in the present, then you will not get caught up with speculation about the future, but you'll be clear-minded about ultimate reality, knowing that everything that you experience, every hardship, every affliction, every distress, every challenge, all the pain that you inherit as a fallen son of Adam is ultimately a rumbling in the distance of something that is approaching in the future. You must be clear-minded about that and embrace that ultimate reality. But the second thing that he says throughout the text, in not only so that's in verses 9, 23, and 33, but in verses 33 through 37, as Jesus delivers his closing arguments in the chapter, Three times in verses 33, 35, and 37, he says, stay awake. Remain alert. And it literally means this, to watch or to give attention to. To be cautious. Be circumspect. Right? Not to fall asleep. Not to grow weary. Not to slumber. Not to close your eyes, but to keep them awake. To keep them open. Now there's been several times in my life, and I'm sure there's been times in your life, uh, where I've been so tired I could barely keep my eyes open, right? Uh, I felt like, you know, Tom and Jerry in the cartoons with the toothpicks trying to, like, put them in there and pry my eyes open. I'm taking as much caffeine, right? Mountain Dews, Monsters, coffee, whatever I could to try to keep my eyes open because I was driving at times late at night. And there's a few reasons why we might find ourselves in that kind of position physically. We might reach that point of weariness or exhaustion because of hard work. 
or because of illness, or because of malnutrition, or because of isolation and loneliness, or because of intoxication, or because we just failed to get enough rest. We woke up really early and we stayed up really late. Listen, there's several reasons why that could happen in our lives physically, but metaphorically, as Jesus uses this term here, He's not saying stay awake 24-7, 365. We would die because our bodies need to recover and rest. He's using it metaphorically to say, listen, that even while you rest, your mind must be clear-minded and it must be aware of what's happening. It must be alert to the reality of what's taking place around you. You must be watchful with an eye on the present reality. And listen, discipleship demands that kind of clear-mindedness and wide awakeness. I see, at, at Redeemer, we have, we have said in the past on a number of occasions that discipleship, what it is, is it's ordering your everyday ordinary life around the message and the mission of Jesus. And if you're to order your everyday ordinary life around Jesus' message and mission, it requires clear-mindedness because we have to discern what really matters and what we ought to give ourselves to. And that clear-mindedness guards us, as we said before, from being swept away into alternative realities. So discipleship, following Jesus today, being about His message and His mission requires that we, we, we discern correctly. But it also, listen, if you're going to order your life around His message and mission, it requires that you stay awake and yearn for the reordering of the world, which will take place at His return. That's what we're yearning for, church. That's when all of our problems will be fixed. And so listen, this is the thrust of the text in Mark chapter 13. That with all these rumblings of ultimate and final redemption, Jesus admonishes us, He commands us, He exhorts us, stay awake, be wide awake, and be clear-minded, discerning of what's taking place around you. Now listen, when talking about the destruction of the temple and the end of the age, why does Jesus say we need to be clear-minded and wide awake? And I think He gives us at least four reasons in the text. Let me give them to you. First of all, He says be clear-minded and wide awake because of deception. In in verse 5, Jesus says that many would come in His name saying that they are Him and would seek to lead many astray. Then down in verses 21 to 23, Jesus warns His disciples that there will be false Christs and false prophets who would arise and perform signs and wonders to deceive the world, and if possible, even those whom the Lord has chosen. In other words, this is what Jesus says, there would be those who, who would follow after Him who would deceive many into placing their hope not in Jesus, but in something or someone other than Him. So Jesus says, if you're going to navigate a world in which there will be those who rise to deceive others, lead them astray, draw them away from from me, draw them away from me, then you must be clear-minded and wide awake, discerning and watchful. Second reason Jesus gives us in the text is in verses 9 to 13 when he speaks of persecution. Jesus, in those verses, warns His disciples they would face formal persecution at the hands of religious councils who would bring them into the synagogues and beat them on account of their allegiance and their affection for Jesus. 
But he also says they'd be delivered over to trials before political leaders. They'd go before governors and they'd go before kings. So not only would you have the religious leaders bringing them into the synagogues, but you'd have the political leaders bringing them into the courts. He says, in addition, you would be hated by all on account of Jesus' name, including their own families, because you'd have brothers who are betraying brothers, fathers who are betraying children, children who are rising up against parents. So you'd have all sorts of persecution, both formal persecution and informal persecution, both state-sanctioned persecution, which we've seen throughout human history as a rumbling, but you'd also have informal persecution as in the context of interpersonal relationships, people would turn on us on account of our faithfulness, loyalty, and allegiance to Jesus. So deception, if you're going to be, and if you're going to navigate a world that, that is that, in which deceivers enter, then you must be clear-minded and wide awake and navigate a world full of persecution. You must be able to perceive what really matters and be watchful and ready. Third, tribulation. In verses 5 to 8, Jesus speaks of wars and rumors of wars with nation rising against nation and kingdom against kingdom. He said there would be natural disasters and earthquakes that would shake the ground and there would be famines that would decimate food supplies. In his commentary on the Gospel of Mark, D.A. Carson says this about these particular verses. He says, There were fears of war in A.D. 40 when Caligula attempted to erect a statue of himself in the temple of Jerusalem. Josephus uses a phrase very similar to 13.7 to describe rumors of war circulating in Caligula's day. The rumors of Caligula's day turned out to be only that. But 25 years later, total war broke out in A.D. 66 when the zealot revolt plunged Palestine into a catastrophic defeat by Rome. There were famines during the reign of Claudius, who was Roman emperor from 41 to 54. There were earthquakes that struck Phrygia in AD 61 and leveled Pompeii in AD 63. He says the language of verses 7 to 8 finds striking parallels in one ancient historian, Tacitus's description, particularly of the last years of Nero's reign, his megalomania, and the civil wars that followed his suicide in AD 68. Not surprisingly, he says, toward the end of the first century, Revelation 6 contains a similar list of wars, famine, earthquakes, and persecutions. So tribulation would take place. There would be hardship. There would be pain. There would be turmoil. There would be distress. There would be affliction. Down in verses 14 to 20, Jesus speaks of a time of great tribulation brought about by what he calls the abomination of desolation, standing where he ought not be. Now, there's several ways commentators have interpreted that particular language. They've interpreted as first as uh, Roman Emperor Caligula who erected statues in the temple and demanded they be worshipped as gods. Or they've, described, or they've interpreted it as Titus's destruction of the temple as the Roman army moved in and destroyed Jerusalem in AD 70, and destroyed the temple. Others have interpreted it as the man of lawlessness out of 2 Thessalonians, as this shadowy figure who would be like an antichrist that would arise and, uh, and, and, and assert himself into the place of God Himself. But despite the interpretations, Jesus says, listen, there's a day that's coming that would be a great tribulation that would be brought about by this one who would come and take a position that does not belong to him and would lead to a, a tribulation, he says, as which, such as the world has never known. 
And then fourth, another reason here. Deception, persecution, tribulation, and what I would call intoxication. Look in verse 2. The disciples say to Jesus, Teacher, look, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. They are captivated and in awe of, the, of Herod's temple that had been built there in Jerusalem. In other words, they say, Jesus, we're in awe of the glory of this temple. Now, the temple had been built initially back during Solomon's reign. And all throughout the years, it had undergone a number of renovation projects. And the temple as it sat in Jesus' day was a beautiful, ornate, and was the center of the city of Jerusalem. It was the largest, most impressive, most ornamented, and adorned of all the temples in Israel's history. Because Herod, the king of Judea at the time, under Roman rule, had set out to make the temple in Jerusalem a cosmopolitan and urban center. He wanted the temple complex to be the center of life in Israel in a way that it had never been before. He wanted to capitalize essentially on the religious function of the temple and make Jerusalem a breathtaking metropolis with the temple at its center to please his Roman overlords. And as a result, the temple became, listen, a center for commercial activity, economic activity, and political activity. On top of its religious importance, Herod placed the burden on the temple of being the economic and financial center, a political, cultural, and social hub of unparalleled scale and proportion in the ancient world. See, at the time of Jesus... Jerusalem wasn't just a city with a temple, it was a temple with a city around it. It was the very center, and it was seen to be as something that was stable, secure, and lasting. The stones were ma- at its base were massive. Some reports tell us that the stones at the base, the foundation of the retaining wall for the temple, some of them were a, th- a hundred tons in weight and 40 feet long. These are massive stones, which you can't imagine anything rivaling or destroying. And so whenever his disciples look at it and they say, Jesus, look at those stones. Aren't they amazing? Essentially they're saying, look at what Herod has done. Look at his legacy. Look at what he's leaving behind him. And listen, church, it is so easy to become intoxicated with things that we are able to see with lesser objects of glory if we're not clear-minded and wide awake. We forget what really matters. So you've got deception, persecution, tribulation, and intoxication. And Jesus says, listen, there's, not, there's coming a day in which there will not be one stone left upon another of this grand construction. Now listen, what Jesus is speaking of in Mark chapter 13, right? What he's speaking of whenever he refers to, if you, if you notice, when, in, in response to Jesus' statement in Mark chapter 13, in verse, uh, in, in, in verse 4, the disciples draw Jesus aside privately and say, tell us, when will these things be? In other words, Jesus, when's all this going to be torn down? When's all this going to be destroyed? When will these things be? Right? And Jesus responds, with this discourse of teaching in Mark chapter 13, in which essentially he says this. He says that the destruction of the temple, which would ultimately come, we know from history in 70 AD, is a type or a foreshadow of what will take place at the end of the age. 
it is one of those rumblings, granted a large rumbling, of what is coming in the future. The structure of the chapter teaches us that the destruction of Jerusalem is a pattern for uh, the, destru- the, the second coming of Christ in the end of the age. See, the language of the chapter gives evidence that we need to come to this conclusion. Let me show it to you real quick before we move on. It says in verses 13, 1 to 13 and 28 to 31, we read about these things and all these things which are a reference in the chapter to the destruction of the temple, not the end of the age. So every time Jesus says these things, or the disciples say these things, they're referring to the destruction of the temple, which was fulfilled in 70 A.D., but in verses 14 through 27 and 32 through 27, we see, uh, I'm sorry, 32 through 37, we see the language of those days, that day, and that hour, which are references to the end of the age, not the destruction of the temple. So what do we make of all that? Here's what I believe we make of all that. Is that the destruction of the temple is a foreshadowing of the second coming of Christ and the end of this age. Right? So it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, 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 a rumbling. And Jesus says, when those rumblings take place, you are prone to being deceived, you are prone to being persecuted, you are prone to being in hardship, distress and turmoil, and you are prone to being intoxicated with the things that you can see and hold on to here. And he says, that's why you have to be clear-minded and wide awake. Because all of these things are dangerous to your soul. So how do we go about doing this? In the time that we have left, I, I want to show you, I want us to see, I want to show you how we go about living as disciples who order our everyday ordinary lives on the message and mission of Jesus by being clear-minded and wide awake, regardless of the rumblings that are taking place around us. And the fr- I, I have several things I want to say to you about that. And I think they're going to get real practical, so I want you to tune in. If you're taking notes, um, I want to jot some of these things down and go back and reflect on them later, because we don't have time. We didn't have time to look at everything in Mark 13, uh, but we don't have time to look at all these in detail. And so take notes, go back, reflect, and have conversations about them. First of all, how do we live as clear-minded and wide-awake disciples? First, we have to learn, church, to trust the Father with the future. Trust the Father with the future. Listen, in verse 32, Jesus tells us that no one, listen, not Nostradamus, (laughs) right? Not the political commentators of our day, not those folks on TBN. No one knows that day or that hour. Not even the incarnate Son knows when it's going to come to pass, when this this age is going to come to an end. No one knows, only The Father knows. In fact, he says that all of these signs that people point to and look at and say, oh, listen, he must be on the horizon. He must be about to return. He says all these signs in Mark chapter 13 that people try to hold up and say that the return of Christ is imminent. All of the, well, it is imminent. It can happen any moment. But all these things that that they say, hey, listen, it's going to happen in my lifetime. All of these things, he says, are but the beginnings of birth pains. And what that means is this. Listen, I, I don't know if they knew what Braxton Hicks contractions were back in Jesus' day. 
Um, but listen, most pregnant women can tell you what a Braxton Hicks contraction is. It's those contractions that start in the second, perhaps early third trimester, uh, which are not necessarily um, moving you toward intense labor. But they get, things get tight. Okay? And even whenever contractions start, right, some women can go into labor. I remember Karen with our first child with Caleb. She was in labor for like almost 36 hours of full-blown contractions before he ever made his arrival. And Jesus says all of these signs, they're like Braxton Hicks contractions. They're like the beginnings of birth pangs. Right? And I believe he uses that metaphor intentionally because he wants us to understand that these things that we're so afraid of in the future, that we're unwilling to trust the Father with, he says these things, listen, they are not things that will ultimately destroy those who are in Christ. So if you are in him this morning, church, I want you to know that while the pains of labor do hurt, right? Women, you can testify to that. Men, you can as well because your hands never recovered from them squeezing it, right? You can testify to the fact that labor is painful, but it produces a joy on the other side by bringing forth new life. Are you willing to trust the Father with that? That no matter what you experience in this life, no matter what rumbling of full and final redemption that you experience in this life, that you tr- entrust it to the Father because you know that He's going to bring life out of death. You know that He's going to bring joy out of despair. So if we're going to be clear-minded and wide awake in the present as disciples of Jesus, we have to trust the future to the father because in the present listen church we are not called to speculation we're called to sanctification to be conformed to the image of christ not to create charts and timelines and codes and if we're going to give ourselves to being conformed to the image of christ we've got to trust the future of the father and this gets so practical because listen if you were willing to trust the end of the age to the father and why, why is it that we struggle so much to trust tomorrow to Him? Why is it that we struggle so much to trust the future of our children to Him? Why is it that we struggle so much to trust our old age to Him? Be clear-minded and wide awake by trusting the Father with the future. But second of all, if we're going to be clear-minded and wide awake in the present in the midst of all these rumblings in which deception, persecution, tribulation, and intoxication would seek, would seek to seep into our lives, then we've got to learn to rehearse the Gospel. Rehearse the Gospel. Listen, in verse 26, Jesus says, After the tribulation, they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Now, we often imagine the second coming of Christ almost like a movie where there is a very low cloud deck. The ceiling of cloud is very low, and at some point, those clouds part, and this beam of light shines through, and Jesus descends through the clouds. 
But that's not what the text says here. The text doesn't say that Jesus comes through the clouds, but the text says the Son of Man comes in, or some of your translations may say, on the clouds. So why is that so significant? Here's why it's so significant, church. In the Old Testament, whenever God appeared to His people, He appeared in a cloud. And that cloud was known as the Shekinah, or the Shekinah glory, or the glory cloud. It was the expression or manifestation of God's presence with His people. For instance, in Exodus, as God leads His people toward the land of promise, away from the land of slavery, He appears to them in a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. God's localized presence, cloud by day, His presence with His people leading them on. On Mount Sinai as well, when Moses ascends to meet with God and receive the Ten Commandments, we're told that the mountain was covered by a cloud. Once Solomon's temple was finished in the Old Testament, and all the instruments had been put in, right? You had all the basins and lampstands and altars. Everything had been erected, and everything was installed, and the priest left the building. A cloud then filled the temple, Or in Ezekiel, whenever God's presence uh, vacates the temple on account of the people's sin, you see this cloud departing. When it returns, you see the cloud descending. Or in Mark chapter 9, even in the New Testament, on the Mount of Transfiguration that we looked at several months ago, whenever Peter, James, and John go up to the mount to meet with Jesus, and He's there with Moses and Elijah, they're surrounded by a cloud See, the cloud represents the localized presence of God, His glory, His majesty, His splendor, which was spatially or locally defined by the cloud. And in the Old Testament, listen, it rested on the temple. So the temple is where you went to meet with God. The temple is where you went for mercy. It's where you went to bring offerings and worship. The temple is the place that you went for cleansing and you went for healing and you went for restoration. So when we read in verse 26, not that the clouds parted and Jesus comes, but that He comes in or He comes on the clouds, Mark is telling us this. Is He's saying that what the temple was, Jesus is what the temple was jesus is that jesus is the source of mercy he is the mercy seat where we now find cleansing and healing and restoration he is the one who will set everything right you see when i say rehearse the fullness of the gospel what i mean by that is this the gospel is not only about individual salvation That is the means by which God is going to restore all of creation by saving for Himself a people. But the end to which they are saved is that they would live with Him in a renewed, restored, material world. That He would restore all of creation. And so when we rehearse the Gospel, we must rehearse not only Jesus' substitutionary atonement, that He lived and died in our place, the means of the gospel, but we must also rehearse the ends of the gospel, that He's coming to renew all of creation. And as we rehearse this, listen church, we're reminded that there is nothing on this earth, there is no political seat of power 
There is no economic viability. There is no amount of money in my savings or checking or 401k. There is nothing on this earth that stands in comparison to the power and glory of Jesus and His ability to satisfy, to heal, to restore, cleanse, and make right. In fact, in Habakkuk chapter 2, and verse 14, we're reminded of the fact that there's a day that's coming in which the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters the sea. In other words, what was once localized in the temple that is now present in Jesus will one day envelop the entire earth and make everything right. It will do away with all injustice. It will do away with all all partiality. It will do away with all pain. It will do away with all death. It will do away with all abuse. That everything that makes this world corrupt will be replaced and set right. But Jesus also tells us about the fullness of the Gospel here in verses 24 and 25 when He says, but in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. See, what Jesus says will take place in those days, right? Not these things, the destruction of the temple, but those days, the end of the age. What Jesus says will take place at the end of the age and final judgment, it, is, it, is, it was foreshadowed by what took place on that day. On that day in which Jesus Himself absorbed God's just judgment against the sin of all His saints. Listen, if you read further into Mark's Gospel, in Mark chapter 15, you read these words. In verse 33, When the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. So for three hours, the sun stopped shining. For three hours, the moon gave up its light. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, as Jesus hangs on the cross, darkness descends upon the land. In fact, in Matthew chapter 27, verse 51, it says, And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. So you had darkness enveloping the land. The earth was shaking and quaking. Rocks were shattering as Jesus gave up His life. See, the fullness of the Gospel church cannot be relegated to either or. The renewal of creation or the substitution of Jesus. But it's both and. And if we're going to be wide awake and clear-minded in the present, we've got to rehearse both of those. Both of those. That Jesus... Listen, Jesus lived in my place. He died in my place. He absorbed God's anger and wrath against my sin. And when He did, darkness descended, the earth shook, and He died. But, through His resurrection and ascension and one day through His return, see, Jesus will come again in power and glory in the clouds to bring the presence of God that would envelop the entire new creation and make everything right. He would come again in power and glory because He came the first time in weakness and humility. 
So if we're going to be clear-minded, church, we have to rehearse the gospel. Now, I'm out of time, and there's several other things here. I'll write them up in a blog post and send them out this week for you to read and ponder and pray through. But the point of this passage is not to give us fodder for speculation. But the point of this passage is to give us fuel for sanctification. That we would be clear-minded and wide-awake disciples in the present. As we resist deception, as we, res- as we, in, 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 as we, as we bear up under persecution and tribulation, as we're sober-minded and, and resist intoxication, all by trusting the Father with the future and rehearsing the gospel in the present. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you so much for this morning. And despite the technical difficulties we've had today, God, we know that where your word goes forth, it does not return void. And so, Father, we pray, I pray that as folks tuned in live and perhaps caught up um, afterwards, God, I pray that your word would seep into their hearts. Father, I pray that seeds would be planted. I pray that your spirit would water them. I pray they'd bear much fruit. And Father, I pray that we as a church would be known as a church that does not give itself to fruitless controversy or speculation about the future. But Father, where you have spoken clearly, that we would speak clearly. And Father, clearly this text in Mark 13 drives us to be faithful disciples in the present by trusting you with the future and rehearsing the gospel for ourselves and for others that we might be witnesses of it to the end of this age. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Listen, if you've got questions about today's message, you got questions about Redeemer Church. If you got questions about um, finding a church home, connecting with a church home in our community, questions about Jesus, I'd love to connect with you. You can reach me at shannon at redeemerrc.com. I'd be happy to correspond with you there, set up a phone call, or even meet in person to talk through whatever questions that you might have. If you need prayer this morning, I want you to know there's a place that you can submit those prayer requests. And that's on the homepage of our website. You can click there on the box and it will bring up a form where you can fill out and ask for prayer in the midst of these difficult days. If you just like information about Redeemer, there's also a guest form there. There's also a benevolence form there. So if you're in need of assistance or help, you can access that assistance or help there as well, all from the homepage of our website. I hope that you were able to come back and tune in to the final portion of this message and catch up. And I hope you'll take a look at our blog this week as I outline several other real practical ways, real practical ways, real practical steps that we can become more clear-minded and wide awake as faithful disciples in the present. May God bless you. May He keep you. May He cause His face to shine upon you. May He lift up His countenance towards you and give you peace. We love you, Redeemer Church.